The following presentation was recorded at the Newbury Buddhist Monastery, Victoria, Australia. Please visit our website at nbm.org.au. Good. So let's move after paying homage to the Buddha, the Dhamma and Sangha with our chanting to um, the Dhamma talk for this morning. I was hoping to talk about sila in the next couple of talks, so we kind of will see how that goes. First, I thought it would be nice to talk about all the different aspects of sila, like the five precepts that we keep as a basic requirement as Buddhists, and to hopefully go really into depth in, uh, with each individual um, um, precept. But when I was looking at this, and, and starting to think about it, I realized that today I might maybe just be able to do an introduction into what sila is, because it's, yeah, it's quite important, it's quite a big topic. So sila very often is translated as virtue, or as ethics, or as morality. What I really like to call it, or what I've also heard as a translation, is the word habit. And the word habit, or the word conditioning, they are actually very, very close to each other uh, in the way I think about it. And of course, when you talk about sila, we are developing the wholesome habits, the wholesome conditioning. And then sometimes it's also referred to as character. What, how a person behaves, what a person is, but of course we don't want to get it too attached to a self because that's something we don't really um, have in Buddhism. We talk about selflessness, so it is a habit or a conditioning that has um, happened over time and that kind of consolidates, the word is, into something we could call uh, colloquially character. So sila means how we think and how we behave in this world. But it also means how we feel inside. And I would really like to stress that part of it because I feel that is really, really important. Experience, I remember Ajahn Brahmali often says, really comes down to feeling, how we are feeling inside, what the feeling is that we're spreading into this world, what the feeling is of the people that they get when they are in our presence or in the presence of whoever, of animals, of other beings as well. And of course, also people who have heard me talk, I like to talk about habit, but I also like to talk about inclination, where the mind inclines towards. And that is something we can kind of mold, something we can condition with um, this beautiful quality of sila. And in the suttas, there is one really nice sutta that talks about the tree, which is leaning in one direction. And because it's leaning in that direction, when it actually will be falling, it will be also falling in that direction. In that specific sutta, it talks about the monastic or the practitioner who is leaning towards um, uh, practicing the Eightfold Path and then therefore leaning towards Nibbana. But um, this time I would like it to stress it in terms of the mind states that we are creating and that will be there for us in the future, not just in this life, but also in future lives to come. So that's a kind of a little introduction 
of what sila might be, what a definition of sila might be. And because I like to look at it in terms of a habit, I would like to talk a little bit about how we can develop habit and how those habits kind of can remain and stay in place. So one important thing first, when we talk about habits, very often people only think about bad habits and they say, I have this bad habit and I can't get out of it and it's automatic and it's awful. <laughs> but don't forget, habits are also positive. You also have positive habits and that's what we are trying to achieve with SILA, that we um, uh, develop and put a habit in place and that it becomes at automatic at some stage and that we just react or we um, it's like a reflex it happens automatically and it's something positive so please please uh, also realize there is those positive habits so we try to um, get rid of or let go of maybe a better word the um, unwholesome negative habits and develop the positive ones so one thing that is really important also in buddhism we talk about faith which comes first maybe another word of faith could be inspiration so we hear a really nice talk or we read the suttas or we see a nice example in the world and we go like, wow, this is really, yeah, that's, that's the right way to go. That's how I would like to be myself. So we get inspired. So that is the first wonderful, important step. But usually with inspiration, the inspiration expires at a certain time. It has like an expiry date and you can't keep it up. So it is important to expose yourself and get as much inspiration as you can, but it can't be maintained that easily. So you use it as a springboard and then the next step that comes is the intention. So it goes a little bit deeper. You reflect about what this Sila business is all about, why you are doing it, and you develop an intention, which is a little bit more of a commitment that you really, really want to do something. And if you really, really want to do something and you really, really commit to that, then the next step, of course, is the action. Because if we are just thinking about the beautiful unicorns and rainbows and how we should be treating each other, and we might have the best of the intentions, but we don't really act, then it doesn't really work. So one of the things that I wanted to talk about a little bit later, but maybe I can bring it in now, is with those precepts. Even if we don't feel in a certain way, we can still act. If we have enough mindfulness, if we have enough distance, we can still make sure that this mental energy that might not be that good at a certain time doesn't escape through our body and through our speech. And I think that's what one way uh, of practicing sila, of practicing the precepts, is to kind of protect this energy of floating out there and getting even worse and kind of falling back onto us later down the track. So, inspiration, intention, and then we are acting. We are becoming active and we are actually doing something. And if we repeat that action, then we have gone through the whole cycle. Because I was a primary school teacher in the past, I do know that repetition is the way we learn. So in the classroom, we would repeat the, the certain actions uh, and then we learn. But even, you, it doesn't have to be in the classroom where you're kind of trying to have something, um, uh, it's like a little bit artificial at times. Even in life, you know, if kids, if little kids want to learn a language, if they want to learn to walk, if they want to learn to talk, they have to repeat, they have to kind of practice. So that is the next step.
Right, so those four steps. Then I have a few quotes from B.J. Fogg, which apparently wrote a book, Tiny Habits, and I've listened to one of his interviews, and one thing that he said really kind of made sense to me. And the quote there is, it's emotions that create habits, not repetition. It's the emotion your brain associates with that behavior. So it's like another layer on top of that. So it doesn't mean what I've just said. You can put it all out the window. <laughs> but what really kind of makes a habit stay, makes a habit become automatic, is when it is connected with emotions, when it is connected with positive emotions, not just the kind of inspiration that is there for a short blip, but an emotion that gets stirred and that might be like a mood or something that stays with you for a longer period of time or that kind of gets triggered every time when that behavior comes up. And that is actually what can get, get you hooked in, in, the, in the worst cases to some of those substances or whatever it is because there is some kind of um, positive emotion that is connected to those bad habits. That's what kind of keeps us in the habit loop there sometimes. So we have to make sure that we do the same thing with the positive emotions, with the positive habits, that they are connected to an emotion. And then, as I said before, that's also a quote from him, habits are essentially acquired reflexes. So what a reflex does in the body is if you have pain in your leg or in your hand, uh, because something is hot, for example, and you're burning your hand, the reflex makes you pull back that hand before you can even think about it. So it's not something that goes all the way from the finger into your brain and then think, 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 oh, yes, oh, hot, I better pull my hand back. It's something which happens very, very quickly. And that is what happens with um, precepts, with sila, um, at a certain stage as well. But of course, it needs to be developed. So that's kind of like the arch. But then another um, nice quote, I couldn't find exactly the quote and I couldn't find exactly the person who said it. But it goes like this, just like the shell does not change its color when it is exposed to fire, so too the noble one does not let go of virtuous behavior, even if put in testing circumstances. And that's really what kind of ha happens um, when those habits have been established so strongly that, as we were saying before, they become part of you. They're interwoven with what this conditioning process, what this character of this being is, and then it becomes very, very natural. Right, a few ways how we could think about sila. One way I really like to think about it is that it is a protection. And I had a little picture there for myself in my PowerPoint. I have my private PowerPoint here now, but you can imagine this. <laughs> I have uh, an umbrella which protects us from rain. So please think about sila, think about the precepts as a protection. So it keeps you out of harm's way. It makes sure you don't get wet. You can shelter. And with the rain, the problem is that if you don't have an umbrella and if you don't have the right clothing, which would be the sila, which protects you, you get soaking wet. And um, now, yeah, it's already starting to get a bit wet out here in Newbury. So you have the, the rain going sideways and backwards and all, all the directions. It doesn't just come down. 
And even yesterday, I was walking down to um, to the hall here in the morning for breakfast, and I thought, ah, you know, you don't really need an umbrella. But because it was so um, so wet outside, it wasn't really raining. But when I came down here, I was I was quite drenched. <laughs> so I was glad I could take off my outer layer and put it on a on a hook to dry there. So if we are not careful, if we get too wet, if we are not protecting ourselves, then of course we can get sick. And that's the same thing which happens with sila, with virtue. It kind of gnaws at us. And over time, if we are not careful, it is something which can pull us down. If we don't have that guard, if we don't have that protection up. The other way I like to think of it, because now with the rain, maybe we can say, oh, that's like, like negative stuff or uh, uh, stuff that is... Um, yeah, one one sort of defilement. I also like to think about it in Australia. In summer, we have a lot of sun. So people have to protect themselves. So sila is like sunscreen, or it's like your sunglasses, or it's like your sun cap that you're putting on. There's nothing wrong with the sun. The sun is actually important, and it's good, and it should be there. But if we expose ourselves too much to the nice things, then those defilements can come up again, how <laughs> we relate to these things. And then we can get caught out. And one of those things also I like to mention here is a wise person, even if they get burned one time, even if they have sunburn or even if they get really wet, it does not mean you don't put the protection on the next time. So please learn from those situations and put on the protection next time, uh, even if it has gone wrong. Another way that I've heard um, Ajahn talk about these things, Ajahn Brahm, is that it is like an investment. So these days, you know, I don't know if people are <laughs> with the financial situation at the moment, if they're still willing to invest in, in like houses or stocks or whatever it is, because they have realized how uncertain that is. But Ajahn Brahm was always saying to people, for example, in Singapore, they were quite interested in, you know, making money with these kind of things. He was saying the kama, the good kama stock market is something which never crashes. So this is an investment which really makes sense. And it is like building or like buying a home for us. Uh, in real life, it's wonderful if we have a home where we can go and shelter, we can pass it on to our family. But this home in Buddhism that we are creating through having a virtuous behavior is actually much, much longer lasting. So it's not just a house that you buy in this life and when you die, you have to kind of give it to your, pass it on to your family. It's like a home that you are creating in this life that you will have access to in a later life as well. So in those terms, these investments um, are different than the world, worldly investments and they're much, much less prone to this whole kind of fluctuation that we are experiencing now. Another way we could think about it, it's like an insurance. <laughs> when you go and sign your life insurance or your car insurance or your house insurance or whatever it, it may be, you know, even if there is disasters in life and they will happen, and we have learned in the last couple of months how quickly they can happen, Sila is like an insurance policy. It is actually something which can carry you through those difficult times as well. So if your house gets flooded, if you get sick, if your car is old, you will get a new car. <laughs> 
a, a nice model that you have kind of invested in, that you have paid your policies towards in your next life. So it's something which carries on over many, many lifetimes. And that is something which sometimes children intuitively know. And one story I wanted to share with you is uh, of one friend of mine. She went to um, a teacher training college with me. Her name was Sonia. And she had an aneurysm in her brain. And she died when she was very young. She died when she was 25. And uh, she wasn't like my closest friend. But we had quite, uh, quite a lot of uh, interaction during that time. And even after the teacher training college. And so I uh, had contact with her family. Of course, the family was devastated. And I actually thought of this because I, I heard in our community, in general in Australia, but also in our um, BSV community, there was a, a suicide which happened recently. And that's something which is kind of similar uh, in terms of the, the age group. It was a young person that, um, that died. So... I was really impressed how the children of her class, she had a first or second grade, I can't remember, and um, dealt with that. So I was already wearing white at that time because I was a part of the house community in Germany, uh, in Metavihara, almost like an Anagarika, um, keeping eight precepts. And then even when I would go back to Switzerland to visit my family, I would still kind of wear white because I just got used to that. So I, I came into the family and they were all wearing black, <laughs> first of all, because that's kind of the, uh, the way of expressing their sadness and their grief. And um, I felt, you know, I'm my, I'm myself uh, apologizing, first of all, to kind of explain, you know, I'm, I'm wearing white because that's just what I'm kind of wearing. It's, it's not a, any, any statement or anything. And I came into that situation not as sad and as devastated as they were, but I was very happy to just be with them, to listen to them, to try to care for them as, and connect with them as much as I could. But um, there wasn't quite that emotionality that I was maybe wishing for, that they could see that I moved, <laughs> but maybe in a, in a different way than they were. And so they showed me her room and, you know, the things that were left over, uh, which, which happens when these deaths are quite um, sudden. But what they also showed me is the letters that the children have written for her. And that was just so beautiful. Those children, they, they I don't know if you can say they took it lightheartedly or they just, they had a completely different approach. So they thought about all the wonderful, all the good qualities Sonia had. Um, that they experienced in the classroom, that they knew, how they knew her. And that was basically bringing her sila, her virtue, out and putting it on a piece of paper and having some drawings and things. But what really struck me there, well, number one was the beauty, and that was actually something that brought tears to my eyes. And I was quite, quite happy to have tears in my eyes to kind of, it, it, it was kind of fitting to the, to the situation. But it was tears of joy. It wasn't tears of grief. It wasn't tears of, of, uh, of, of loss. It was the tears of seeing her beautiful qualities being um, uh, sung about or being written about by those children. And one of the other things that was really nice, I don't think any of these children were Buddhists, but a few of them were saying, we wish you a, a happy next life. <laughs> or we, we kind of 
wish you um, that you have a, have a good life wherever you are going. So they had this idea of that it is carrying on somewhere and that whatever she has established in this life, especially in her heart and in her mind in terms of Sila, is something which will carry on, which will be there for her, which will be a protection, which will be that house, that home that I um, talked about before. Yes, all right. One other way of thinking of Sila that apparently uh, Ajahn Chah was using when he was going to lay people's houses and doing the ritual of blessing them with holy water. And that's something which hopefully you can now imagine in your mind, even you don't have the pictures for it. He says, water has four wonderful, beautiful qualities. And they actually fit in very, very nicely with Sila as well. And one of the things that Ajahn Brahmali has done a few times when I was sitting and uh, being his uh, upatag or going to, like his attendant, or going to lunch with him um, to do house blessings and so on, was that he talked about this, but that he said, the water that I'm sprinkling on you guys is actually just a symbol for something. The real um, uh, blessing is the blessing that you develop in your hearts by keeping sila. And that is what will really give you that power and that blessing. Right, so we have the first one, the first quality of water is its purity. So with the precepts, we are purifying our minds. And it means very clearly we are using water to wash our clothes, we are using water to clean in the kitchen or wherever it is. Water has this quality to dissolve the things that are dirty or that are defiled or that are not that nice and to make them pure, to make them clear again. So that's quality number one. Quality number two is the coolness. We don't really, uh, now, now we would want to have hot water, <laughs> I think, in winter. It's very nice. We have our own showers in our kutis. But usually in Australia, it's pretty, pretty hot, uh, especially in summer. And, you know, those defilements can be described as a heat that is, is created in our bodies and in our minds. And that sila, that water, can actually calm us right down, can cool us right down. So that's another quality of the water there. Then, of course, we know with the plants, like the little Bodhi trees here behind me, I, I don't know if you can see them, we have two uh, beautiful Bodhi trees that are in here, <laughs> because outside they wouldn't survive. But they need water. They need water to grow. So it is a, um, a quality of uh, prosperity. So we become prosperous if we have a lot of sila because that is the water for our plant to make it progress, to make it grow. And then the last quality um, is the cohesion of the water. So if we have water droplets on the plant, we kind of see how the water collagulates or whatever the word is. <laughs> it, it, it builds a little droplet. And also when we want to make uh, bread, for example, and we have um, flour and it's, you know, all over the place and it's dry and you can't use it for anything really, uh, at least, uh, or you can have a cough if you breathe it in. But if you add water into it, it starts to bind things together. It starts to create harmony. So to remember, I try to put those four qualities as the four P's. So now, uh, first P is purity of the water. The second one is P for power. So that was the coolness. So we have a power 
over the situations so they don't overpower us we can cool things down and then the progress is the next one so we grow we prosper and the last one the harmony is the last p which is peace right so the next question I have on the screen here is why Sila? I hope I've given you many, 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 many reasons so far why Sila. But one of the reasons that came to me that is quite quite specific to Buddhism and that I've talked about a little bit already is also virtue is what makes us human. I don't know if people realize that we are here because of virtue. If our virtue wouldn't have a certain level, our rebirth wouldn't be in the human plane. So when we think about it in this way, it should hopefully encourage us to at least maintain the status quo and make sure we stay human and we don't fall down into lower realms mentally or even physically later down the track. But it also means if we are becoming human, if we are, uh, if we are humble, if we um, stick to this humanity and behave like a human being, we can even go higher. We can be like an angel. We can be like a deva. We can improve our status, so to, so to speak, and go to different worlds um, in the Buddhist way of thinking about this. Now, some people who have maybe a fault-finding mind or who were thinking in the back of their mind while I was, was talking will say, hang on, Bante. I mean, yeah, sure, fair enough. Virtue has brought us here. But didn't the Buddha say, um, fettered by craving and blinded by delusion, we keep on this wheel of rebirth and that is what really brings us into existence. Yes, that is correct. <laughs> but... Sila is the first very important part to cultivate, to practice, uh, to actually work with this human existence, with um, what we have been given and what we have achieved so far. So, of course, samsara that I was talking about there is the perpetual wandering. And, of course, we want to get out of that perpetual wandering. It's like this huge ocean where you're this little kind of ship. And if you don't have any sila, it's like you don't really have a rudder. You have nothing to help you in that situation. But sila is what keeps you afloat and what gives you direction in your life. So that is kind of the first step. You, um, as all the Buddhists out there will know, we have sila, we have samadhi, and we have panya. So sila is the first step, and sila has to be really solid. It's like um, um, the ground we're building a house on. And then we can add samadhi, which are the walls, and then at the end we can add the roof. But if we do it the wrong way around, it doesn't really, really last uh, and doesn't work. So one of the suttas I wanted to refer to um, is called the simile with water that I have printed here for myself. If people want to have a look at that, it's in the Anguttara Nikaya 7, uh, or in the book of the 7th, and it's number 15. So it is called the simile with water, but Ajahn Brahm and a lot of other monks um, uh, that I've heard talk about this like to talk about it as the seven shipwrecked sailors. Sailors. So in the sutta, it doesn't tell you how those beings got into the water. It just tells you what happens when they actually are in the water. But let's assume they were on a ship on some stage and now they um, are suddenly thrown into this water. And there is seven ways 
of what happens to them that I wish to read out to you here. So this is from Ajahn Suchato's translation from Sutta Central. And uh, I think Joanne has also put the link there for people if they want to uh, go and have a look. So, because these seven people found in the world are like those in water. What seven? One person sinks under once and stays under. One person rises up, then sinks under. One person rises up, then stays put. One person rises up, then sees and discerns. One person rises up, then crosses over. One person rises up, then finds a footing. One person has risen up, crossed over, and gone beyond. And that Brahmin stands on the shore. So I would like to specifically focus on the first couple here, but also mention the rest of them. So the first one goes straight down and basically drowns. And that is a simile for the bad karma, for the unwholesome actions that have been performed and that can pull us down. That's what I was talking about before. So that would be an existence that comes up that is unfavorable, that is not that nice. Then we have the second um, shipwrecked sailor who floats for a little while and then goes down. So that means we have a person and now here um, the Buddha talks about qualities that have been established in that person, at least for a short period of time. So that's why they are floating. And those qualities are faith, and then we have hiri and otapa, two very important qualities connected to the precepts and connected to sila. So it's moral shame, it's conscience, basically, uh, as Ajahn Brahmali, um, uh, no, sorry, Ajahn Sujato here um, translates it. So you are realizing it, it doesn't quite feel right when you're doing something, when you're saying something, or when you're even feeling something. So you have a, a feeling of, 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 of shame or of even a little bit of guilt, not in a bad way, but just in a way where you realize this, this is not right, this doesn't feel right. Like when we're touching something which is hot and we realize, oh, no, that's not good. <laughs> And then otapa is the fear of comic consequences, the understanding that what we do, how we act, how we behave, how we feel, has a consequence. So there is a fear connected to that, an understanding that if we are not careful, we go down the wrong path. If we are careful, we go down the right path. So it has two sides, of course, always. And then we have the energy that I was talking about before as well, the energy that starts to build, you have the inspiration, which is the faith, the energy, and then mindfulness and samadhi are not mentioned in this sutta, but I guess they're implied because it usually comes in a pack of five. And then there is wisdom. So they are practiced. But now the problem is, even though they are practiced, we are not diligent, we kind of forget about it, we get pulled all over the place and do all sorts of other things, and we forget. And then that means we can't maintain it, and that's why this shipwrecked sailor, even though there were these positive qualities, um, they weren't strong enough to hold on to, to strong enough to make that person float. So the person, unfortunately, also goes down. The third one floats on the surface and remains. And that's what I was kind of alluding to before. We have Sila, we have this wonderful opportunity to be here as human beings. So let's at least maintain it. <laughs> uh, 
and try to, even if we lose it, that's fine, that happens every now and again, to get back on the horse, get back on the bandwagon, whatever it is, back on the train, not the train of thought, but the train of, <laughs> train of virtue, and then maintain it and practice it so we can actually stay afloat. So that was the third one. And then the fourth one remains on the surface. And now because that person has remained on the surface and long enough, sila has been established. The power of sila starts to give rise to the power of meditation, the power of um, samadhi, of collection, of clarity. Then we can actually turn around and see the dry land. And that is the step in this sutta for the stream enterer. So it needs a solid basis that we can stand, well, that we can swim on <laughs> and not go, go under. And then we can have a look around and see safety. And that's when the moment happens when we have seen. We can't go back anymore. We have seen. We can't unsee it anymore. And we will eventually start swimming. And that's what the next uh, one is. Number five is swimming towards the land. And that represents the once returner who is on the way to safety. The next one is number six. That's the person uh, who is standing in the surf and wading to the shore. So they have that solid ground under their feet for the first time now. And they are reaching the surf there. And that means that they have reached... Uh, 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 that, sorry, that is the non-returner. Yes, who has reached the surf. And then number seven, of course, is the last stage. That is full enlightenment. That's the Arahant who has reached the shore. And as Ajahn Brahm likes to um, put it, is sitting under a coconut tree and having a cup of tea for the English people. <laughs> I don't know if the Swiss guy is going to have a piece of cheese or whatever. <laughs> or maybe nothing at all. Just, just chill and enjoy uh, once that has been um, achieved. So one other quote that is um, attributed apparently to Lao Tzu. It was attributed to so many people on the internet that it was really confusing, but I think the oldest source, if you're kind of going back, is Lao Tzu, but it is in line with what we were just talking about. And I'm sure you have heard this quote before that kind of shows that process quite nicely. So watch your thoughts. They become your words. Watch your words. They become your actions. Watch your actions. They become your habits. Watch your habits, they become your character. Watch your character, it becomes your destiny. All right. So, um, I'm not quite sure how we're doing time-wise. We usually stop around 9, 9.45 for, for questions. Sorry, I kind of forgot to mention that. But uh, is there already questions being asked? Oh, no questions. Just people listening. Or oh, no one out there. People are too <laughs> too busy with doing other stuff Sunday morning. Um, maybe, maybe let me carry on for a little while because then I can um, finish that arch before we go in the next talks into the individual um, uh, precepts. So in Buddhism, we talk about the three doors. So we have volition. We have the, 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 um, the energy of thought or the movement of the mind as you want to call it which kind of comes through the first door and then as i said before it kind of escapes or it transforms into the other two doors the door of speech and the door of action and that's how kamma is created 
by volition, by an intention that we have. If things happen unintentionally, it's a bit of a different story there. But if it's intentional, then the energy is there and that energy kind of carries out into the world. And then, of course, people will know we have these qualities in our hearts that we call the three um, roots. Um, uh, they are greed, hatred, and delusion. That's like the roots that we try to avoid. And then we have the opposite of those, which is uh, very often people don't talk about it as the opposite word, you know, they say loba dosa moha, and in Pali it's aloba adosa amoha, which means non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion. But I like to actually find a word which is the opposite, like generosity, kindness, and wisdom. And that's what sila really means. Maybe let's have another quick look at one of the suttas that I wanted to go through also to back up what I was speaking about. It's Anguttara Nikaya 10, 176, and it's called with Chunda. We actually have a monk here called Chunda. <laughs> so um, let's have a look at that uh, sutta. What I wanted to talk about is the 10 wholesome or unwholesome courses of action. The Dasa Akusala or Kusala Kamapatta, they appear many, many, many times in the suttas. But um, this time, uh, the sutta that I would like to uh, point you towards is Anguttara 10, 176. And that basically tells you about Chunda, uh, Chunda the smiths from the mango grove. And um, he asks the Buddha um, how to become pure, how purity is achieved. And the Buddha asks him how he is practicing that. And he talks about the practices of his teachers and what they have told him, that there is certain rituals that you should perform. Um, and it says here, you know, you should greet the sun and you should um, um, touch the ground and you should bathe like they bathe in the, in the Ganges River, even these days, to purify yourself. And the Buddha says, um, well, if you do that or if you don't do that, what you re really purifies you is your actions. And then he goes into the uh, impurity and purity that is achieved through the threefold um, actions by body, fourfold actions by speech, and threefold actions by mind. And that is basically what the precepts are about. It is a little bit kind of broader there, but it goes through, of course, not killing and harming, not taking what is not given, no sexual misconduct, no lying. Then in the speech sector, it talks about malicious speech as well harsh speech and idle chatter. So that is part of those 10, uh, not part of the precepts as such. And then it goes into the mental world as well, where we talk about desiring something in a very, very strong way, wanting to have something, or having ill will in a very strong way, so that we wish harm upon other beings. And then one very important thing in here is as well, number 10 is wrong view. So it is very, very important to develop the right view, and that basically means having an understanding of karma and rebirth that I tried to allude to before as well. So let us maybe just go through the five precepts um, in a positive um, uh, way, and then let's turn to the questions that have come in. 
So even here, I really like to talk about the precepts in their positive manner. So of course we are abstaining, we are um, abandoning certain qualities, but we are also developing positive qualities. And that's what I would like to talk about in uh, the next talks in the future. So the first precept would be developing harmlessness. And that is actually something which goes right across the board for all the precepts. We are making sure we are not harming ourselves, we're not harming other people. And that, especially in the first precept, means that we have respect for all living beings and that we have compassion for all living beings. In the second precept, the positive part means we have gratitude for what is given freely to us. We care for things that have, put, have been put in our care, things or also beings, like our children. And we have generosity, which is the opposite of grasping and wanting, is actually giving. The third precept is all about friendship, about trust, about fidelity. And then the next one, number four, is about talking the truth, truthfulness, honesty, but through that also reliability, which is a very important quality to develop. And the last one I really like to talk about in terms of mindfulness and in terms of having clarity, having that pure mind that we talked about. Um, so we can see things clearly and we don't fall into um, breaking some of those other um, precepts. Okay, let's close here for now for the talk today and see what we have for the questions. Thank you, uh, Bhante. Yes, we have uh, one question come in online. Mm -hmm. uh, the question is, as I get serious about the Buddhist path, what should be some initial actions I should take to rectify a lifetime of uninstructed or selfish living? Oh, okay. So, wonderful. You're getting serious, <laughs> but in a, in, a, in a way that you're understanding why you're doing these things and that you're hopefully being inspired, as I was talking about it before. What has happened in the past, we can't really change. That is one of those problems. So um, it doesn't really make sense to go there with our minds too much. Because very, very often what happens, we just start to get negative, we start to get down on ourselves, we might even get scared or whatever it is. So that is not really what will um, um, give us the energy and the oomph that we need to, to jump into action. So I would rather try to look forward, try to look to what you are trying to develop and to try and really get into that instead of trying to get into this past stuff, trying to rectify things. Of course, it is wonderful to practice forgiveness. It is wonderful if uh, some of those people are around and you can have a chat with them and you can tell them, I've changed my ways or I've thought about a, a few things that have happened in the past and how that um, might have hurt you or has definitely hurt myself to try and clear that up. But in the end, it's uh, with forgiveness, it's the letting go that happens within our, our own hearts. And I have seen, unfortunately, too many times that we are way too harsh and way too strict with ourselves. And strictness and harshness is not really what helps us learn. 
it's like with the kids in my classroom, if I would be fierce and if I would be kind of telling them, if you don't do this or if you don't do that, you will have this kind of punishment. They might do what I asked them to do, but they do it out of fear and they forget it when they're out of the classroom. They forget it years down the track after being in my classroom. So what I rather try to um, create is an atmosphere where they can get exposed and feel the positive things and really want to develop those. And then once they're starting to develop them, I can kind of stand by their side and encourage them, be their coach, give them the material to learn, but I can't make them learn. One other thing that uh, we talked about as well um, during the online retreats that I was giving is if you just kind of see yourself as a little child who is trying to learn to walk on this path of virtue now. And as you know, with those little kids, it doesn't really work. They fall so many times, but they have a strong determination to actually learn to walk. And they get up again and they try again and they try again, but they don't really get really um, like uh, on their own backs or they don't really get angry with themselves. They just keep on trying. And uh, I wish that we could have that kind of um, way of dealing with it. The other thing is also if you are a parent looking at that child, children are usually kind of cute. <laughs> and if they make a mistake or if they fall over, it's, it's kind of cute. But if you make a mistake and you fall over, you kind of feel like, oh, you're, I'm so stupid. Oh, why did I do that? Oh, I'm such a bad person. So try to get out of that mindset and see if you can... Uh, Look at yourself like this child who's trying to walk on this wonderful path and just keep on going, keep on going. Another good thing is, of course, to hang out with people who have these qualities already. And then you can encourage each other, um, become part of a group, listen to talks. Um, yeah, whatever, whatever helps. I hope, um, yeah, this clarifies the question. Oh, we have one more. Yes. Oh, okay. Thanks, Bhante. <laughs> um, the next question online is, I have a defilement that I'm aware of. Mm. I've tried to get rid of it, but after a few months, even when I'm aware of it, I slip up. How mm. can I overcome this? Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, again, uh, bravo, wonderful. You are aware. <laughs> you know there is a defilement. The biggest problem is if we don't know about the defilement. And that's also one of the questions that came during the retreat where a person was saying, oh, I have this thing and it happens again and again. And I kind of know where it comes from which is wonderful. So if you kind of get an understanding where the conditioning comes from. So it's like a computer that has a certain program on it. Now, you can't just take the program off the computer. <laughs> that doesn't really work. So you have to put in an antivirus program <laughs> that replaces that one habit that you had there before. And what happens very, very naturally is you have the one program which worked for so many years and it's very normal that you slip up and that you get back into old habits because that's what habits do, you know, they repeat, repeat themselves, they're like reflexes, it, you get a certain trigger and bang, you're back into that situation again. So of course what helps is mindfulness and you're already practicing that because you're kind of realizing, oh, I'm getting closer, oh, it's happening again. So in that space, that's where the other program comes in. But you can't just let go of one thing 
and not have something else which replaces it. So what will be happening is that the old program was running, I don't know, 80% of the time. So we try to lessen and lessen, lessen it 60%, 50%, and the new program to kick in in its place and to replace it. And then that one is going up 40, 40%, 50%, 60%, 70%, whatever. And then at a certain stage, you have the new habits so, so established that the old habit is not needed anymore. But very often when defilements come up, what I've kind of uh, experienced for myself is if I stop, if I listen to what is happening within me, there is always some discontent. There is always some uh, not very nice feelings in my body or some thoughts that are racing or some thoughts that are negative. So that is what I can really work with. And if I can have kindness and compassion towards whatever is happening within me and soothe that, then that is the replacement of the habit that I had before. So the habit is basically soothing me out of a situation that I don't really feel that comfortable in. And now we have to change the substance. <laughs> we have to change the medication. We have to change um, the thing that we are using, the emotion that we talked about before, that can soothe, smooth, give us back the power, cool us down, give us a clear head. Um, so yes, don't, don't be too hard on yourself there as well. Keep on practicing, um, exchange yourself with other people who might have similar problems, then you can help each other. And one thing that I also feel is, is very nice is once you become a mentor in a certain role with another person, then you have a responsibility that is not just for yourself, but it's also for, for a wider kind of... And then that will make you stop and think. Uh, it's also okay to have a certain commitment that you make, but it helps if that commitment is made with a group of people. It's like when people get married, they don't just get married somewhere, you know, they, they fly off on, a, on an island and get secretly married and come back. It's something you do in the community, something you let, of course, your partner know, <laughs> but then also you let uh, your family, your, your friends, the community out there, and that can actually be something which gives you accountability, that gives you this moment to think, oh, I promised something, not just to myself, because sometimes for some people it's hard to keep something just for themselves. It's like for the monastics here, we have our monastic rules that we keep. Every two weeks we have confessions like we will have tonight. And you open up to one of your um, friends in the holy life and you discuss these things. And that can be really helpful, I feel. Okay. Oh, 10 o'clock. Oh, one more. Oh, they keep coming. Okay. Uh, next question, Bhante. How do you maintain positive thoughts? How do you maintain positive thoughts? Yes, that's one of the things we talked about in the retreats. And that's one of the things, well, I, I haven't talked about positive thoughts in that respect, but one of my questions I had uh, that I asked Ajahn Brahm is how do you maintain mindfulness? And mindfulness is basically a, a positive, clear mind. And he said, don't destroy it. <laughs> it's such a simple such a simple answer but such a deep and profound answer actually because if we have gained something and we don't value it enough then we will just throw it away 
And once we start throwing it away, then we start feeling bad about ourselves. We say, oh, I'm a bad person. Oh, it doesn't matter now. I've already done this. Oh, I, don't I have another bucket of ice cream or whatever it is. I don't know what it is. But that's kind of how we operate. And it's really sad. So try to, to stay on that wave, as I described it in some other talks, as long as possible. Ride it out. Ride it out until it gets really, really flat. Share it uh, with other people. And do good things out there. And that will really boost your, uh, your positivity. And then the other thing is, as we were saying with the emotions, that's what really keeps your practice and your habits going. When they are there, really feel that emotion, really let it sink into you. So very often, you know, there is, even in monastic life, over here, we, we come to a new place and we got lots of things to do and, 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 and your mindfulness decreases every now and then. But then when you go back and when you sit and when you meditate, really, really appreciate and really, really reflect and go like, oh, wow, this feels nice. <laughs> and all I have to do is sit down for a couple of minutes, let go, be kind, be gentle, be compassionate towards myself and other people. And then it starts to arise again. It, it's there. It's, it's, it's like the home is there and you can always come back. You can always come home. So what you really need is mindfulness, is remembering it, getting back in touch. And especially for ourselves now, we have the Rains Retreat coming for three months. And you guys out there, if the question is from Melbourne, a lot of you guys are going into um, stay-at-home orders or even um, you know hard, hard lockdown. And, and I don't want to minimize that. Of course, I know it's, it's a difficult situation because you are put in that situation without actually wanting it yourself. But try and make the best out of it. Try to understand that what the monastics are doing here is a stay-at-home order for three months for the monks here. And we're doing that to protect ourselves from the defilements which are out there. And another thing which I would like to kind of give you, we destroy these things with the news, for example, as well. I've been watching myself, um, reading up on the news and watching the news because I want to be informed as well. But there is a limit. It starts to suck you in, it starts to drag you down, and you become and have a negative mind. And I have these apps that I have for positive news. There is an app called Kind World, and it only reports on the kindness which is happening in the world. And when I listen to that, I have a positive mind. It's much easier to meditate. I'm much more balanced. I'm friendly towards myself. I'm friendly to other people. I ask myself, why do I watch the news? <laughs> why do I read the news, you know? So um, limit, limit it. And really feel, how is it feeling when you're exposing yourself to things? And if it's feeling good, not good in a kind of greedy way, but in a wholesome way, carry on doing it. Build on it, develop it. If it doesn't feel good, get the information you need and run. <laughs> Don't stay there for too long. Okay, was, was that the last question? Oh, one, there's one more. more okay. All right, all right, all right, okay. Before we finish. Go for it. Um, what makes a purposeful life, especially with children being pushed to play video games? What makes a purposeful life, especially by... With children being pushed to play video games. Right. Uh, I, I'm wondering who, who pushes whom. You know, is it, is it the media out there or is it the world out there that pushes this onto you? 
um, or or your peers or, or whatever. I, I guess it comes to a little bit of what I was talking about before. Of course, the world pushes and pulls us. But with meditation, we learn, as I said before, to stay at home, to stay in safety, to stay in the shelter, to create an oasis. And that's what I was trying to encourage the people on the weekend retreats that we've done together, to create that oasis and to come back to that oasis where you can really recharge your batteries. These kind of things, of course, there might be some wholesome wholesome games out there, or there might be some things where you're learning something for a little while. But uh, once you get sucked into it, and once the defilements start to, you know, play around, then they start to play around with you, and you're not playing with, you know, then, then rather have your internal video game where you can be playful with your mind, where you can be playful with your emotions. Yeah, definitely, it is very, very difficult. So with children, what might work is to develop rituals to develop environments and atmospheres that you create for yourself on your cushion and that you create for your family as well, that you have family time where you just sit, sit down together, hang out together, um, reflect on what has happened to, to, to the different people in the family, um, talk openly about feelings. So when these things kind of arise with computer games or with problems out in the world that the the, the children uh, feel comfortable to, to share these things uh, with you in a similar way. Um, I've heard stories of um, parents who had really a hard time meditating, <laughs> a really hard time establishing that habit. But when they did it consistently and when the children really picked up on it and saw that they are becoming more peaceful, they realized they are creating this space in the house, which is like the peace zone. And I've heard of um, uh, examples where there were families with two kids and they were like kind of, you know, fighting. Or, and uh, when, when a fight started, one of the kids would run <laughs> towards the meditation mat and kind of sit on the meditation mat to, to kind of symbolize, oh, this, this is like, this is the peace zone, you know, I don't, I don't want to fight anymore. So they kind of get, uh, get a feeling for what you're establishing and then starting to tap into that. So you establish it for yourself that you can tap, tap into, but you also establish it for, for your children out there. Um, instead of watching video games, um, what was it called? Um, there was a program from CBS News uh, with Paul, uh, what's his, Hartman is his name, and it's called Kindness 101. So he does programs in the United States. It's called On the Road. And he usually goes out into the community and shows virtuous behavior that is happening in the community. And because of the lockdown, he has created a program for kids and for families where he talks about virtues and how they can be developed and rather kind of do something like that. Sit down as a family and, uh, and watch that and, and get inspired and have those those nice feelings cursing through your minds and your bodies instead of, uh, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a restless energy that gets created through video games. I remember as a, <laughs> as, as, as a youth, when I was at the boarding school, we would have like play, play time and, and well, video game time. And we would be, what is it? Playing street fighters or something. <laughs> And I don't get really into it, you know, that's, my fingers would hurt, you know, you just, you try to push every button. I mean, there's different moves that you can do, you know, you have to do combinations, but because you don't know it, you just push it like really hard. <laughs> and after five or 10 minutes, I just felt so bad. <laughs> 
when I stopped and felt into myself, and I was like, well, why, why am I doing this? <laughs> I could be doing much nicer stuff. Okay, anyway, uh, long answer. I hope this helps. Oh, one more. Okay, let's do another five minutes, but we'll have lunch afterwards. Sorry, Vante. No, 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 I no actually, problem. I have a question myself. Ah, sure. Yes, go it's for it. It's probably more, or a little bit more of a comment as well. Um, yep. With the precepts, I kind of have my, uh, I know in Theravadan Buddhism, we don't talk a lot about repentance mm -hmm. for, say, breaking a precept. Right. Um, I kind of have my own way of repenting say if oh, i and i find that kind of gives me a positive mindset so would you can you sort of comment on that or is that something that mm -hmm. gets spoken about a bit in mm -hmm. by was that spoken at all by mm -hmm. the buddha or Ooh. um mm -hmm. repentance uh, i mean the word repentance for me uh i don't know if i understand it completely as as having english as my second language but it, it, it comes with a bit of baggage kind of where you feel you know you're like oh you shouldn't be doing that <laughs> but of course the buddha encouraged for us monastics as i said that we understand we have over overstepped the line and that we reaffirm that we recommit and that's what we do every two weeks with the monastics we have a set of rules we confess those rules but it's not like we 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 get cleared by a god or by someone but we get clarity within ourselves where we go like, aha, that didn't really make sense. It didn't make me feel nice. And one of the biggest problems I feel with those things is shame, hiding it, not wanting to deal with it, not, not being open. And that's, I think, what the repentance part, as I understand it, is all about. Opening it up. If there is forgiveness, you open up to someone else and say, oh, sorry, that really didn't feel feel right. And um, can I make it good again? Or, you know, can we be friends again or whatever? And you're doing that internally as well. You forgive yourself. You forgive your kandas. You forgive, forgive your conditioning for for working in a certain way and say like, ah, let's let's condition this in a, in a different way and see how it goes. Yeah, that's good. Thank you. Okay. okay. All right wrap up good wonderful so what we usually do is we pay respect to the buddha dhamma sangha and uh today especially because it is the dhamma day we pay special respect a very nice deep bow to the dhamma today yes oh yes so um the monastics who are doing the talks here usually also do a meditation on monday night so that will be tomorrow at 7 30 and maybe we can talk about or feel about, feel that kind of oasis that I was talking about a little bit during that meditation together. Okay, uh, let's pay respects to the Buddha, Dhamma and Sangha.